0: Those of you that don't know me my name is Chris Genders. I've been a part of this church for about 15 years. I work for an organization called Youth for Christ locally. Um, I would we work with middle school and high school students. I would cover your prayers. Um, we have sent a lot of Great Oak students to Miracle Camp this summer. Uh, we have two charter buses full of high school students from all across central Illinois that are leaving this coming Saturday uh, to go to Chesapeake Bay, Maryland for a week. And uh, yeah, Grace is going with so there you go. Miracle Camp's in the house. Yeah, it's like a homecoming reunion over here. Um, but we, we leave on Saturday. We're going to be gone uh, all next week. And uh, so I would just appreciate your prayers. A lot of those students don't know Jesus. Um, and uh, they just, they're in for a treat. Uh, that, just an amazing week. So I would appreciate your prayers for that. Let me start with a question. Have you ever had one of those moments where you felt invisible? A way where you felt unseen, overlooked, ignored? I remember a moment like this my senior year of high school. Um, I wasn't the amazing specimen of a man that I am now. Um, I was a little nerdy. Um, I didn't have a full head of hair. It was a mullet, uh, if you can picture that. And uh, I remember it was during class. I think I had gone to the bathroom for some reason. um, So nobody else is in the hallway except me as I'm walking down the hallway. And all of a sudden, I saw another senior, a girl, walking towards me. She was kind of cute as most boys do in high school when cute girls are walking towards them, they get nervous and awkward and weird. But then she waved at me, and it was just us in the hallway. And I was like, wow, like here's my future wife. Like this is amazing. Like I don't know what I did to earn social status to all of a sudden have her notice me, but it's amazing. And I noticed she kind of looked at me weird when I waved at her, but I didn't think anything of it. Like we're going to get married someday. And um, as we got closer, I noticed that she was no longer looking at me, But she was looking at her best friend, who I didn't know was walking behind me. And I was just the weird guy in the middle between her and her best friend. I felt invisible in that moment. I felt overlooked. And nobody likes that feeling. Nobody likes to be invisible, to be overlooked, to to be chosen last for dodgeball, unless you hate dodgeball and you didn't want to play anyway. Then you're fine being chosen last. You wish you weren't in PE class at all. Nobody likes being overlooked for the promotion or the raise. The award, the recognition. Nobody likes being alone in a crowd of people. When I have done youth ministry over the years, one of the things that I like to do is stand at the door and greet students as they come in. Every student gets a fist bump or a high five. And a a, a phrase from me that goes like this. I look them in the eyes and I say, I'm glad you're here. Because I want them to know that I see them. That they matter. That God sees them. You know, if we stop to think about it, this, this desire, this need to be known comes from God. Uh, scripture tells us that we are made imago day in the image of God. God exists in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so it makes sense that we would be hardwired for relationship. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, to the creation of all things, we see God creating things, and he keeps saying this phrase, it is good. He creates light and dark, and he says, it is good. He creates land and water and says, it's good. He creates birds and animals and fish of the sea, and he says, it's good. And then he creates Adam alone. And it's the first time we see God go, it is not good. It's not good that Adam is alone. And so he creates Eve as a companion for him. We're hardwired to be known, to be seen, to not be invisible. It can go back to our childhood as well. We all want to hear our parents say, I'm proud of you, well done, great job, to celebrate our successes, to pick us up in our failures. When I was in high school, middle school and high school, my my dad worked a job that he was on the road Monday through Friday, so he wasn't around a lot. My mom was working two or three jobs to help make ends meet, so they couldn't be at a lot of my sporting events. But man, those basketball games and those tennis matches, when they showed up, I was an all-star. Like, it was the best feeling in the world. I played better, I was faster, I was quicker, I scored more points. Like, it was just unbelievable to see, to be seen by my parents. And I I have to take a, a moment here, and let's be honest with each other. Some of you today have struggled your whole life to be seen. Some of you have spent your entire life feeling invisible. Whether it was ignored by your parents Your peers, maybe educators hardly noticed you in the classroom. Maybe coworkers and bosses kind of forgot you were there. Some of you feel that today still. And my hope is that here at Great Oaks, you have found a place where you are seen, where you're noticed, where you're loved. I I would encourage you, implore you, um, I know that you have spent your life feeling invisible, and it's easy sometimes still to come into a church that's supposed to be welcoming and we strive to be, but uh, because you're so used to being overlooked, it's easy to stand in the shadows and in the background and to not draw attention to yourself. And I get that. But I'm going to ask you to take one more relational risk let us know you're here. Talk to one of our pastors, talk to Jason, our new discipleship pastor. Let me help you get plugged into a life group that meets weekly to study the Bible and to live in community with other people, to get on a a serve team, to serve alongside other people, to join in this mission that God has put before us as a church. And take that risk, please. Some of you are on the other end of the spectrum. You've never been invisible. Like your whole childhood, your whole life, your whole whole experience has been in the spotlight. You were rarely overlooked. You're rarely ignored. You were top of the class. You were the star quarterback. You were voted most popular, most likely to succeed. And these moments of of recognition, uh, they stir something amazing inside of us. And it it is amazing when we we receive those. And it it doesn't stop at our teenage years. Employee of the month. Salesperson of the year. Top producer in the company. The biggest house on the block. Nicest car in the parking lot. As good as these moments of recognition are, uh, they often come with a a potential dark side. Arrogance. Ego. Pride. I I am the best. And everybody recognizes that. I moved here in 07. It was uh, the start of an unprecedented era in Metamora football. 2006, we were in the semifinals. 2007, we won the state championships. 2008, we were the runner-up. 2009, we were state champions again. 2010, we were in the semifinals again. Incredible run for Metamora football. It was something to be proud of, accomplishment that's just amazing to celebrate. And and during this era, I had a chance to go speak at Metamora High School's Fellowship of Christian Athletes. They invited me. They meet Friday mornings before school in Room 200. And they said, whatever you want to talk about, Chris. And God just kind of stirred it in me to give a talk called Humility in the Face of Greatness. And what I challenged the students with that morning is that as followers of Jesus, it is perfectly acceptable to embrace a relentless pursuit of excellence. And if success follows that excellence, then that's celebrated even more. But we're also called to accompany that with traits like humility, compassion service to others. It's a really challenging tightrope to walk. This morning, we're going to look at one of my favorite biblical characters. We're in the favorite series I get to kick us off. So I want to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was somebody who, who had to walk that tightrope. He, he was a unique man, lived in the wilderness. He had a, a message of both hope and conviction. And and I think we can learn a lot from his life, especially how to maintain humility in the face of greatness. A little high overview of John, though. Here's some artwork. We didn't have Polaroids back then, so here's what people think he looked like. Uh, This is an artist's kind of mosaic of John the Baptist. Uh, This is how the Chosen series has decided to portray him. And then this is another movie that uh, decided to portray John the Baptist like this. You're starting to get a picture. This guy is not normal. Right? He kind of stands out in a crowd. He kind of draws attention to himself just from his, his physical appearance. But uh, let, me, let me give you an overview of who John was before we get into some snapshots of his life. He was the second cousin of Jesus. Pretty good pedigree. I mean, if you're going to be anybody, be related to Jesus, right? Like literally earthly related to Jesus. His birth was announced by an angel appearing to his dad. He grew and he began to live and minister in the wilderness. He was out there. He, never, he didn't live in the city. He maybe traveled a town, but he, he lived out in the city or out in the country. He, he wore a cloak made of camel's hair, probably pretty uncomfortable. I've never worn camel's hair, but I, I, it seems like it would be uncomfortable. His food was locusts and honey, kind of survived off of odd things he found in the wilderness. He had this unique message about the, the kingdom of God coming soon. Think crazy street preacher in a major urban environment, right? You're walking down the street and there's a guy on the side of the road with a, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Like, this is John out in the wilderness doing this. And crowds are flocking to him. People came from all over the place to be baptized by him. Jesus was baptized by John. There's a resume builder. What have you done in your life? I baptized God. Does that count? Jesus, in fact, publicly praised John. Said that, and you can see this in scripture, said that he was the greatest man born to women. John not only preached a challenging message about the coming of the kingdom of God, but he also challenged religious authorities and political authorities. The king at the time was a man named Herod, so King Herod, and King Herod had a brother, and his brother had a wife named Herodias, and King Herod kind of had eyes for Herodias. And being more powerful than his brother, stole his brother's wife. Well, John the Baptist is like, hey, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. And didn't only, uh, not only challenged King Herod, but also talked publicly about it. Well, when you begin to talk publicly against the king, you kind of end up in jail. And so John is arrested. He's brought into jail. But he kind of languishes in prison for, for we don't know how long. But Herod was kind of fascinated by him. He was also kind of maybe fearful of the crowd, but Herodias, Herod's wife that he stole from his brother, hated John because John was calling, him out, calling her out, calling Herod out. And so one day, King Herod is throwing a party, and Herodias' daughter performs, and Herod says, I'll give you whatever you want. So she goes back to her mom, and she says, Mom, what, what should I ask King Herod for? And Herodias, without skipping a beat, says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter Now. And King Herod, because he had to honor his word in front of his guests, has John the Baptist beheaded. And Jesus hears about this. And he grieves deeply. This was a man that he loved. Let's take a look at some of the snapshots, though, of, of John's life. His parents were named Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were an older couple who had no other kids. And in that culture, in that day and age, that was kind of seen as, as a shameful thing, a negative thing. And so they earnestly wanted kids. Zechariah was a priest, and he was serving in the temple one day and uh, was assigned to be in the Holy of Holies, kind of the inner part of the temple. And an angel appeared to him and, and gave him this message. We picked this up in Luke chapter 1. It says, When Zechariah saw him, the angel, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, "'Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah.'" To turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. I want to draw a few things out uh, from that moment, that snapshot, that angel's message to Zechariah. Verse 15, it says that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. This was unique. In fact, there is nowhere else in all of the Bible where we see that a, a baby was born with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Nobody else. John was unique among all of mankind. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would the third person of Trinity—Father, Son, the Holy Spirit—which is kind of hard to grasp anyway. But in the Old Testament, would be on a person for a very short period of time. In the New Testament, what we experience today, the Holy Spirit resides within us. But the time of John the Baptist, that wasn't the case. And yet, the angel told him, "John will have the Holy Spirit in the womb." He also says he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And if you don't know who Elijah was, you could read through this and, okay, whatever. I don't know what that means. But Elijah was, was a, a very powerful Old Testament prophet. Uh, he, he performed a lot of miracles. He challenged the prophets of Baal in a God versus God um, mountaintop battle. He predicted no rain for three years, and it happened. He provided a widow with unending grain and oil. And when that widow's son died, uh, Elijah rose, raised that son from the dead. He crossed the Jordan River on dry ground by taking his cloak off and touching the water, and the water parted like Moses in the Red Sea. In fact, he didn't die. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. And so the Jewish people, even still today, are still waiting for Elijah to come back. During the Passover meal, they will have an extra glass of wine on the table for Elijah And at some point in the meal, uh, typically a child will go to the door of the house and they'll open the door and they'll look outside to see if Elijah has arrived during this Passover meal. They still do that today. The arrival of Elijah was an indication that the Messiah was coming. And here Zechariah, hears, your son, born to you in old age, Holy Spirit in the womb, will be like Elijah and will prepare the way for the Messiah. And then there's this weird thing in there that's easy to overlook in verse 17. It says that John's going to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. Why is that important? Well, to understand that, you have to understand that from the Old Testament to New Testament, on a timeline, is 400 years of silence. God chose not to speak through any prophet, any priest, anybody. It's just 400 years of silence. And so Zechariah, the priest, and all of the Jewish nation was just waiting for God to show up again. They're waiting with anticipation. And all of a sudden, we see this, that, that we hear these words. And for Zechariah, they're going to be very familiar words. If you go back to the Old Testament, the, the final book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And the final chapter of that book, in the final verses, words of that chapter, before 400 years of silence, is God saying this through Malachi. I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children. To their fathers, Those are the last words that the nation of Israel had ever heard from God. And then Zechariah hears from an angel, By the way, your son, he's the one. And so John's kind of a big deal. you got to wonder how much of this his parents have told him through his years. But he, he grows, he begins to serve in the wilderness, he's preaching. Remember, crowds have been flocking out to him. Uh, people are just wondering, who is this guy? What's he about? He's becoming a pretty big deal in that nation. And so the religious leaders decide, we're going to go send some people and figure out who this guy is. And so we read this in John chapter 1. It says, the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. I'm sure people were wondering, are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're waiting on? I mean, all of our history has been pointing towards this moment. Are you that person? And John goes, no, I'm not. What then, they asked him. Are, are you Elijah? I'm not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What, what can you tell us about yourself? Who are you? What are you doing? Why are you such a big deal? Have you ever had a moment like this? Some of you have. Ever had a moment when people sought you out because you were succeeding at something? You were the, the all-star student who really just understood everything. And other students were seeking you out for help. Teachers were sending students to you because they, they knew that you could explain it maybe as well or better than they could. Maybe you're achieving on the sports arena. And, and other athletes are coming to you and going, hey, can you give me some workout ideas? Can you tell me how to be a better athlete? Maybe your kids are well-behaved. Another frantic parents with kids running around at their feet going crazy are trying to figure out how in the world you do it, and they're texting you, help, please. What are you doing that's so different than what I'm doing? Maybe it's business success. You've reached the pinnacle of your career, and all these people are coming to you for mentoring and for advice. Maybe it's health and wellness. People want to know, "How, how, how can I eat better? How can I exercise better? It's easy in these moments to start thinking of ourselves more than we should. It's easy to, to start getting prideful, arrogant. It's easy to start thinking, I am kind of a big deal. I am really smart. Other students should be coming to me for tutoring. I am an amazing athlete. Like other people should train how I train. I am the best parent I know. I mean, I look around. Like I know. My kids eat healthy. They're always polite to each other and they do extra chores without even asking, right? I'm the best employee this place has. It would fall apart without me if only everybody worked as hard as I do. It's easy in those moments, especially when people are coming to you, saying, what's your secret? Why are you so successful? Let's take a look at how John the Baptist responds again. I mean, he really is a big deal. But watch how he responds. Are you the Messiah? Nope. Are you Elijah? Nuh-uh. Are you the prophet? Not even close. Who are you? John says, listen, I'm, I'm just a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John's answer? I'm not. I'm not that smart. I'm not that athletic. I'm not that good. I'm not the best. I'm not even the one you should be paying attention to. I'm simply somebody who's being obedient to what God has asked me to do, And he goes on to explain what that thing was. He was sent to reveal who the Messiah was for everybody else. That's why he was baptizing in the wilderness. And there's a day that, that he's baptizing and Jesus comes out to him, his second cousin, and wants to be baptized. And John kind of already knows, like, Jesus is the man. And so John tries to push Jesus away. and says, no, 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 I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus goes, no, I need to be baptized by you. And so John submits and he baptizes him. And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And this is the long-awaited moment that John has been waiting for. It's the, the pinnacle of his career. He cannot get any higher. He has revealed who the Messiah is. All of the years of living in the wilderness, all the years of locusts and honey and preaching this crazy message and being misunderstood, all of it is for this moment right here. And then the crowds start to walk away. The followers start to turn towards Jesus, even some of John's closest friends and disciples begin to abandon him and, and go to Jesus, how does John respond? How would you respond? The student who thought they were valedictorian suddenly finds herself beat out by another. And The starting quarterback doesn't start this game, but the second-string quarterback is put in by coach. The employee, the employee of the month barely makes quota the next month. And this is what's happening to John. And watch how he responds. His followers come to him and say, Rabbi, the one you testified about who's, who's with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everybody is going to him. John, don't you care that the, the crowd is disappearing? That you're not the big show anymore? Don't you care that people are abandoning you and, and going to him? And John goes, listen guys, nobody can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that all along I have been saying I am not. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the one. I've only been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So my joy is made complete. Because crowds are following Jesus. That's why I came. And he says these words in verse 30 He must increase, Jesus must increase. But I, I gotta decrease. What's your purpose in life? It's a question every human being has to answer. I don't care what you believe about Jesus or not. Every human being wrestles through this question like, why am I here? Rick Warren, who wrote his seminal book, uh, Purpose Driven Life, starts with these words about what is your purpose here on earth. And he says, it's not about you. And he goes on to unpack that. He says, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. Rick says it's, it's not about your personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, your happiness. It's not about your family, your career, your, your dreams and ambitions. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, those of us in this room who claim to follow Jesus, then we must accept that our life is not our own. John modeled this for us. But Jesus modeled this for us. He was the suffering servant, surrendering everything to the honor and glory of our Heavenly Father. And we should strive to do the same. All of our areas of life, our dreams, ambitions, careers, family, personal fulfillment, all of these should be, for, should be focused on bringing honor and glory to our Heavenly Father. And Mark Twain once wrote that the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Rick Warren would say that we were born by his purpose and for his purpose, And like John the Baptist, if we bear the name of Jesus, then our purpose is to make him more known in the world. And It's not about us. Friends, you and I, and this is going to be hard for some of us to believe, you and I are not the main characters in our life story. And John the Baptist knew his calling. He knew that it was to make Jesus more known in this world, He knew that he was sitting in the second chair. John the Baptist knew that he was in the background, that his job was to to elevate Jesus in this world. So much of the tension we feel in our lives is when we try to step into the spotlight to to claim a position that really and rightly is only Jesus. We did a, a, a men's discipleship program here many years back. It was called Men's Fraternity. And there was this thing in there called a paradox principle. It says if you really want to live... You have to die to self. You have to make your life not about you, but about loving God and loving others. Demonstrate the the radical love of Jesus in a world that so desperately needs it. What would that look like in your world this week? Really, only you can answer that question. But what would it look like to, to make the name of Jesus more famous in this world and your name a little less famous? You know, it looks like a few years ago when I got back from summer camp, two in the morning, students all got picked up by parents. We had to, the buses were destroyed, the charter buses. We had to clean them. And I'm starting to clean up, and I'm exhausted. And I look up, and there's my boss, the executive director of Youth for Christ. Not saying a word, just broom and a dustpan and a garbage, garbage bag in his hand. And he's cleaning, and he looks up, and he sees me. He's like, Chris, go home. I got this. I'll clean this bus. That was an amazing moment for me to see my boss, the executive director of this whole thing, telling me to go home. He's going to clean up after us. It's the the star athlete giving up their starting position to a bench player in the the final game of the season. It's the employee of the month mentoring younger employees and then celebrating when they get recognized, when they win employee of the month, praising them publicly publicly. It's the CEO who gives up her bonus to provide more equitable pay. It's the the family who intentionally downsizes their home and their their lifestyle to give away more money to feed and house other people. What does it look like to to make Jesus more famous in this world and, and us less famous? It's demonstrating humility in the face of greatness, serving others without recognition, putting other people in the spotlight celebrating the, the success of other people. It's elevating others above yourself. You know what this world doesn't need more of? It doesn't need more of Christ genders. It doesn't need more of you. You know what this world needs more of? It needs more of Jesus. He must increase. We must decrease. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and just admit that this is hard. That we love the spotlight. We love being seen and praised and recognized. And that's not always sinful, but we can make it sinful. Father, forgive us when we do. Forgive us when we we relegate you to second chair, to the background, and we take lead. Father, help us learn how to, to live with humility to think of ourselves less and of you more. Father, to surrender all areas of our life to making the name of Jesus more famous everywhere we go. We pray this in his name, amen.